God bless us and the Virgin protect us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The third trumpet. And the third angel sounded the trumpet. The great star fell from heaven, burning as it were a torch. And it fell on the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. The third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. From the commentaries. This passage harkens back to chapter 9 of Jeremiah, in which while warning of, quote, a coming famine resulting from idolatry, Jeremiah affirms twice, because Israel's religious leaders have spiritually polluted the nation with idolatrous ball worship, God, quote, will feed Israel with wormwood, give them poisoned water to drink, close quote. Now, wormwood is a, is a bitter-tasting plant. It's from the same uh, family as sagebrush and the spiced tarragon. The star is an unfaithful bishop or priest who falls from the firmament of the church. Heaven symbolizes the church. The star is an unfaithful bishop or priest who falls from the firmament of the church where Christ has placed him to enlighten and direct the world. And as we've seen before, both the fire as well as the notion of being judged by thirds are symbolic of severe spiritual famine and burning with fire also represents burning with or being consumed with air. By false teaching example, this unfaithful bishop or priest poisons the very sources of doctrine which should flow as pure water from the mountain torrents. The rivers and fountains symbolize sources of knowledge, the divine truth. Like our divine Savior, the bishops and priests of the church must be fountains of water springing up to life everlasting. He himself becomes wordwood by his apostasy because he becomes a self-appointed teacher or false prophet. This fallen star changes the sources of spiritual life into wormwood and the sources of poison and bitterness, sources of spiritual death. Unfortunately, many of the faithful drink from these poisoned streams of false doctrine and so perish. Close quotes. Thus the commentaries. So the star falling from heaven like a burning torch is an unfaithful bishop or priest by his apostasy has become a false prophet burning with absolutely consumed with air and who by his false teachings poisons the very source of doctrine and turns the source of spiritual life into source of spiritual death. And in the spiritual famine which results from this, may the faithful suffer spiritual death from imbibing these poisonous false doctrines. Now given all that, the interpretation will fall in this conference is that this star falling from heaven like a burning torch signifies an apostate priest whose false teachings involved cloaking the errors of Russia in deceptive language taken from Catholic doctrine and consequently spreading them to Catholic academic circles. We'll identify them in a minute. But first, we'll briefly consider an edited and abridged account of what seems to be the most profound spiritual experience in his life, a literally life-changing mystical experience. And he, it's, it, he's written it down, even though he's going to use the third per person. As I read this, though, ask yourself, what exactly is going on here? What precise sort of spiritual experience is this priest describing? As I said, the priest describes his experience in the third person. August 8, 1919, quote, The man was walking in the desert when the thing swooped down upon him. From afar it had appeared to him, quite small, gliding over the sand, pale fleeing shadow no bigger than the palm of a child's hand, when suddenly, with the speed of an arrow, it came straight at him, and then suddenly penetrated his soul. 
The man felt he was ceasing to be merely himself. An irresistible rapture took possession of him. At the same time, the anguish of some superhuman peril oppressed him. A confused feeling that the force which had swept down upon him was the combined essence of all evil and all goodness. And now in the very depths of the being it had invaded, the tempest of life, infinitely gentle, infinitely brutal, was murmuring, you called me here, here I am, says the thing. You have need of me in order to grow. And I was waiting for you in order to be made holy. I've been drawing you to me, and now I'm established on you for life or for death. He was once seen me, can never forget me. He must, must either damn himself with me or save, him, save me with himself. The man replies, O you who are divine and mighty, what is your name? Speak. O you who are divine and mighty. We continue. The thing. Because in my violence I sometimes slay my lovers, because he who touches me never knows what power he is unleashing, wise men fear me and curse me. I'm the essence of all that is tangible. You who have grasped that the whole world has, even more than individuals, a soul to be redeemed, lay your whole being wide open to my inspiration and receive the spirit of the earth which is to be saved. Your salvation and mine hang on this first moment. Now this wave of bliss in which he had all but melted away was changed into a ruthless determination. He began to battle the dark power. And then the frenzy of battle gave place in his heart to an irresistible longing to submit. And he felt that henceforth nothing in the world would ever be able to alienate his heart from the greater reality which was now revealing itself to him, nothing at all. And he surrendered himself. Close quote. So what precise sort of spiritual experience is this priest describing? It's pretty clear what he's describing. He's describing becoming possessed, and willingly so, by an evil spirit that calls itself the spirit of the earth, spiritus mundi. The priest to whom this happened, the priest who in 1919 surrendered himself to this dark power that wise men fear and curse, the priest that described himself becoming willingly possessed by the spiritus mundi, the spirit of the earth. This priest was a French Jesuit named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Now, in light of the intimate relationship between Teilhard and this spiritus mundi, the spirit of the world, the spirit of the earth, consider these blasphemous comments. We're not even going to bother commenting on them. I'm just going to read Teilhard. Quote, the world. The value of the infallibility and goodness of the world, such in the final analysis, is the first and only thing in which I believe. It is by this faith that I live, and it is to this faith I feel, that at the moment of dying I shall, above all doubts, abandon myself. To this confused faith in a world, one and infallible, I abandon myself, wherever it may lead me. Quote, Trust in the world animated by our Lord, and the world shall save you. Quote, because, besides communion with the earth, is there not also communion with God and in through the earth? Quote, the only truly natural and real human unity is the spirit of the earth. Quote, what we call inorganic matter is certainly animate in its own way. Atoms, electrons, elementary particles must have a spark of spirit. In 1946, after the U.S. nuclear tests in the Pacific, he writes, quote, 
For all their military trappings, the recent explosions at Bikini proclaim the coming of the spirit of the earth. Close quotes. So as we've seen, this momentum builds up, trumpet after trumpet, one plague flows into another, a certain self sense helps propel the next disaster. In that light, then, we'll consider one of the key errors in Russia that this fallen star modified and used to poison the very source of doctrine and turn those sources of spiritual life into sources of spiritual death. And as we've seen, Marxist doctrine proclaims that matter is the only reality, and the blind process of evolution is produced not only plants, animals, and men, but also human society. And by this process, matter is moving towards its final state, which is the classless society. Now, Teilhard was completely on board with the notion of evolution. Quote, is evolution a theory, a system, or a hypothesis? It is much more. It is a general postulate to which all theories, all hypotheses, all systems must henceforth bow, and which they must satisfy in order to be thinkable and true. Evolution is a light which illuminates all facts, a trajectory which all lines of thought must follow. This is what evolution is." Close quote. But although Teilhard thought very highly of communist doctrine in general, he faulted one aspect of their approach to evolution. He thought by stopping at the class of society, instead of extending on and evolving into a spiritual realm, it missed the actual point of the whole evolutionary process. In his own incoherent way, Teilhard made God an essential part of the evolutionary process. In other words, if you add spirituality to communism, you have the answer, as one author noted. Just as the Marxist places an imaginary class of society at the end of this natural process of evolution, so also Teilhard places union with the so-called Christ as the end point of a natural process of evolution. Quote, the unique business of the world is the physical incorporation of the faithful in Christ. This major task is a natural process of evolution. Though frightened for a moment by evolution, the Christian now perceives that what it offers him is a magnificent means of feeling more at one with God." Close quote. And that passage also reveals his pantheism. It's the strange belief that everything is just an expression, emanation, a part of God. It's very clear that the Christ of Teilhard is not the Christ of the Gospel. He speaks of Christ as being Omega all the time, the end. But he never speaks of Christ as being the Alpha, the beginning. And why is that? Because of evolution. His Christ is part of the evolutionary process, Teilhard. It is Christ in very truth who saves. But should we not immediately add that at the same time, is Christ who is saved by evolution? Close quote. He does not believe in supernatural grace. Rather, he states that, quote, the stuff of which grace is made is strictly biological, close quote. And this complete rejection of the supernatural is part and parcel of his pantheistic approach. Quote, Dietrich von Hildebrand relates how in the course of a conversation with Teilhard, he happened to say something about St. Augustine. Don't mention that unfortunate man, Teilhard exclaimed violently. He spoiled everything by introducing the supernatural. Quote. On the basis of, basis of his pantheistic doctrine of evolution, he states that, quote, the modern world is a world in evolution. Hence, the static concepts of the spiritual life must be rethought, and the classical teachings of Christ must be reinterpreted. 
a whole series of reshapings of certain representations which seem definitely fixed by Catholic dogma has become necessary if we sincerely wish to Christify evolution." Close quotes. And that gets to the very heart of it. When he tells us the concepts of the spiritual life must be rethought, the Catholic dogma has to be reinterpreted, the evolution has to be Christified, and the classical teachings of Christ himself must be interpreted, he is announcing his program to poison the very source of doctrine. He's announcing his program to turn the source of spiritual life into spiritual death. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. One of the most important things to realize about Teilhard, besides his diabolical inspiration, is that he's a very cunning deceiver. And he's fully aware that he's deliberately setting out to establish a new religion in the wrappings of Catholicism, as he makes perfectly clear to a chosen few in his private correspondence. In one letter, for example, Teilhard writes that he wants to get rid of the personal God, the one true God, and establish a religion with a new God, the spirit of the world. What dominates my interest is the effort to establish and to spread a new religion. You may call it a better Christianity, in which the personal God ceases to be the great Neolithic, that's Stone Age, in which the personal God ceases to be the great Neolithic proprietor of former times in order to become the soul of the world. Close quote. He makes his intention of establishing this religion under the guise of Catholicism very clear in a letter to an apostate priest. He's speaking to safe company there. He states, quote, the church has reached a period of necessary reformation. I consider the reformation in question much more profound than that of the 16th century is a matter of faith. Man now has to rethink God, a God who can be adored and attained only through the elaboration of the universe. I do not see any better means of bringing this about than to work towards this reformation from within. That is, by remaining sincerely attached to the Catholic Church, whose development I expect to see." Close quote. In his private correspondence, Teilhard exposed himself as a cunning heretic who has camouflaged himself as a faithful Christian in order to spread his heresies more effectively. In his own words, he admits that he's promoting a new religion with a new God. In his own words, he admits that he's remaining with the Church and staying with side, inside in order to more easily spread his heretical views. Now, before we consider the significance of his so-called theology, let's briefly note a few of his perfectly logical conclusions that flow from his evolutionary standpoint. And as we read this, keep in mind that I'm reading the quotes of a Jesuit priest. During the Nazi regime, he says that the strong need to consider new ways to handle life's rejects in the hospital. Quote, how should we judge the efforts we lavish in all kinds of hospitals on saving what is so often no more than one of life's rejects. To what extent should not the development of the strong take precedence over the preservation of the weak?" Close quote. In the same essay, he asks what the advanced races should do with so-called unprogressive ethnic groups. Quote, what fundamental attitude should the advancing wing of humanity take to definitely unprogressive ethnical groups? The earth is a closed and limited surface. To what extent should it tolerate, racially or nationally, areas of lesser activity?" Close quote. Even after the war and the diabolical disaster of the Nazi eugenics programs, he states that, quote, so far we have certainly allowed a race to develop at random. It is indispensable 
that a nobly human form of eugenics should be discovered and developed. Eugenics applied to individuals leads to eugenics applied to society." Close quote. After the war, at one and the same time, he issues a call for eugenics programs as well as for so-called population control programs. Quote, in order to continue advancing, humanity must come up with effective control both in quantity and quality of reproduction in order to over avoid overpopulation of the earth or its invasion by a less satisfactory ethnic group." Close quote. It's pretty vile stuff. After considering only a few of his errors, it doesn't take much reflection to see why in 1926 he was forbidden from teaching, why while he was still alive so many of his works were refused in imprimatur, why in 1947 Rome forbade him to write or teach on philosophical subjects, why in 1950 in the Encyclical his theories were condemned, although without naming it. Why in 1957, the Holy Office forbade the works of Teilhard to be kept in libraries, and forbid his books from being translated in other languages or from being sold in Catholic bookstores. Why in 1962, a decree of the Holy Office warned that, quote, in philosophical and theological matters, the said works, Teilhard's, are replete with serious errors which offend Catholic doctrine, close quote. And it furthermore instructed bishops, superiors, and rectors to, quote, protect especially the minds of the young, against the dangers of the work of Father Teilhard de Chardin and his followers." Close quote. And yet, in spite of all that, Teilhard is the evil genius who inspired millions with the idea of theistic evolution that completely infects Catholic academia and seminaries. As Dr. Wolfgang Smith points out, quote, granting that we are currently plagued by more than a single heresy, theistic evolution in particular plays a pivotal role inasmuch as it contradicts the biblical revelation more directly and profoundly than the rest." Close quote and amen. The question we're left with is why anyone would fall for this kind of intellectual trash. And that's to put it mildly. To anyone actually trained in the empirical sciences, Tehard's uh, writings come across like so much Gnostic gibberish or the ravings of a lunatic. As one Nobel laureate put it, Tehard cannot be read without a feeling of suffocation, a gasping and flailing around for sense. So why would anyone fall for this kind of intellectual trash? We'll answer that in some detail by paraphrasing and summarizing the brilliant commentary of Anne Roche Muggeridge. As opposed to the church and common sense, both of which teach that truth is objective and immutable, modernists maintain that truth is nothing of the sort, rather subjective relative, historically conditioned, and evolving. And according to the modernists, as human consciousness progresses, the simpler, cruder understandings of reality, of dogma, of truth, that satisfied it in bygone days can no longer be accepted. Yes, yes, the fathers of the church used to believe that, but we've moved past all that now. No one really believes in a literal six-day creation weekend nowadays, do they? Now, it's a pretty tall order for the modernists to present as a legitimate Catholic teaching their claims that dogmas and truths changed and evolved over time. If contraception was wrong in the time of the apostles, then it's still wrong now. If our Lord taught that Adam and Eve were real people, and he did, then they're real people. The only way to make that case is to get people believing that everything changes over time, including dogmas and truths. So in order to explain the revolutionary changes and legitimate developments, a theory of theistic evolution was absolutely essential for the modernists. So even though Teilhard's theory of cosmic evolution compounds bad science with horrible theology, it fits the bill, 
and the modernists employed it as the vehicle for their attacks on the structures and dogmas of the church. And as we've seen, Teilhard retained the traditional dogmatic language. He preserved appearances, but at the same time, he emptied of, it, of its original meaning. A case in point is Teilhard's treatment of the problem of evil. Catholic teaching is clear. Sin entered the world through conscious moral choice, the original sin committed by Adam. But Teilhard claimed that evil was rather, quote, a statistically inevitable byproduct of a universe in the course of unification with God, close quote. In other words, sin is not a moral question at all, but it's a natural byproduct of evolution. So what becomes of original sin? Teilhard explains, quote, the idea of the fall is no more than an attempt to explain evil in a fixed universe. In other words, it didn't happen because we don't live in a fixed universe. We live in an evolving universe. What becomes of Adam and Eve? Teilhard explains, quote, Adam and Eve are images of mankind pressing on towards God. In other words, they didn't exist. What becomes of the traditional understanding of the atonement and the redemption? That is, as sin and death entered the world by one man, Adam, so by one man, Christ, the new Adam, sin and death were conquered. It's gone. We've already heard the blasphemous explanation of Teilhard that Christ is supposedly saved by evolution. Just considering this one example of Teilhard's explanations of sin and a few of the consequences, and there's a lot more, but a few of the consequences that flow from his position is a clear demonstration of how incredibly useful his theistic evolutionary theory proved to be for the modernists. Under its influence, any doctrine, any truth, any moral teaching can easily be reformed and reshaped. And so from before the First World War through the Second Vatican Council, Teilhard was the single most important figure for modernist survival. And at the same time, he was revered as a persecuted prophet. As we've seen, Teilhard gave another important example to the revolutionaries. Lie, dissimulate, but never, ever, ever leave the Catholic Church. Thus, Anne Roche Migridge. So this false prophet has literally flipped everything upside down. Instead of the one true and absolutely immutable God, we now have a God who's involving. Instead of Christ being the Alpha and Omega, we now have some sort of cosmic evolutionary Christ who's only the Omega, the ending point, but not the Alpha, the beginning. Instead of being saved by Christ, we're saved by the world. Instead of Christ being the Savior, evolution saves Christ. Instead of timeless, immutable truths, the only absolute now is change. Instead of Scripture being the inspired internet word of God, we now have a collection of pre-scientific myths suitable for the more primitive, less evolved minds of bygone years. Instead of Adam and Eve as our actual parents, we now have a mythological Adam and Eve. Instead of a fall from grace, a fall from perfection, we're now faced with the idea of an evolutionary advancement towards perfection. Instead of the totally gratuitous gifts of supernatural grace which perfect nature, we now have grace, which is an evolutionary biological byproduct. But it's all hogwash. It's all diabolic, blasphemous hogwash. All of it, every last bit of it. A few last thoughts here. Even though he died in 1955, his legacy lives on. His writings have been translated into every major language and sold by the millions. Quote, is possible to trace to Teilhard the idea that a synthesis between Christianity and Marxism is inevitable. 
Jared taught that the Christian and Marxist ways must eventually come together because everything in the, the nature of things, everything that is faith must rise, and everything that rises must converge. 1948, as the communists marched to victory in China, Teilhard wrote to a friend, who can tell whether in the very interest of the kingdom of God, a good dose of Marxism is not the thing to save us. Close quote. In his history of the Second Vatican Council, Roberto Di Mattei, the prominent Italian historian, noted, quote, how strong Teilhard de Chardin's influence was on the council, and that the name of the French paleontologist frequently resounded in the hall. Close quote. One of the theological experts at Vatican II also commented on Teilhard's influence. And I think this is an important quote. The impetus given by Teilhard de Chardin exerted a wide influence on the council. With daring vision, incorporated the historical movements of Christianity and the great cosmic process of evolution from Alpha to Omega. The council's pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium in space, took the cue. Teilhard's slogan, Christianity means more progress, more technology, became a stimulus in which the council fathers found a concrete hope. Close quote, Joseph Ratzinger. We'll give two of his supporters the last word. First, Cardinal Henry de Lubac, S.J. He defended Teilhard with at least two books, made the comment that, quote, we need not concern ourselves with a number of detractors of Teilhard in whom emotion has blunted intelligence, close quote. And finally, in July 2009, the spokesman for the Vatican, Father Federico Lombardi, S.J., said, quote, by now, no one would dream of saying Teilhard is a heterodox author who shouldn't be studied, close quote. We need not concern ourselves with detractors of Teilhard in whom emotion has blunted intelligence. By now, no one would dream of saying that Teilhard is a heterodox author who shouldn't be studied. Well, indeed. The fourth trumpet. And the fourth angel sounded the trumpet, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So the third part of them was darkened, and the day did not shine for a third part of it, and the night in like manner. From the commentaries, Heaven symbolizes the church. It's the darkening of the lights of heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars. is a sign that the people have violated their covenant obligations to God and are undergoing judgment. And that the leaders of the church have departed from justice and holiness to wickedness and depravity. The brilliance of the church's doctrine and sanctity is diminished. The day is less brilliant. The night of ignorance becomes darker. The whole church suffers from a weakening of faith and discipline. Many reject it. Others abandon it. The symbolism of being judged by thirds is symbolic of severe spiritual famine. Amos 8, verses 9 through 12 also stands in the background, in which the Lord God says, quote, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight, close quote. This prediction of a coming judgment on Israel also occurs with the woe of spiritual famine, in which people will, quote, stagger to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it, close quote. Because they rejected God, he will reject them and will withdraw his presence and his word from them. The plague of darkness symbolizes judgment and especially the woes of God's withdrawal. The plague of darkness is a symbol of divine reaction to idolatry, but this judgment could also be directed to unfaithfulness, falsehood, and error within the church. Close quotes, thus the commentaries. So heaven symbolizes the church, the darkening of the sun, moon, and the stars, the lights of heaven, sign of judgment, that the people have violated their covenantal obligations to God. They've turned away from God and haven't kept the commandments. And it's a sign that church leaders have departed from justice and holiness. 
In other words, it symbolizes the whole church suffering from darkness of ignorance, unfaithfulness, falsehood, and error. This prediction of a coming judgment on the church also occurs with a woe of a severe spiritual famine, such as is spoken of in the prophet Amos, in which the Lord God says, I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Close quote. Given all that, the interpretation that we will fall in this conference is that this darkening of the heavenly bodies signifies the influence of the theological movement known as the Novel Theology, in English, the New Theology. Now, what are we talking about when we speak of the theological movement known as the, the new, Novel Theology, or the New Theology? It's also called the Ressourcement. And that's not, uh, that's not being pretentious. It's actually got French names. We're talking about a theology founded on theistic evolutionary fantasies of Teilhard. We're talking about a theology that spread the errors of Russia through Catholic religious houses, seminaries, and academia. Let's take a closer look. In just two sentences, one of the new theologians, the French Jesuit, Father Henry Bior, summarizes the main principles of the whole movement. The first sentence is typical Teilhardian gibberish. It serves as a justification for the second sentence, which is actually the key principle of the whole movement. We'll read both sentences, then briefly comment on each. Father Bouillard. Since spirit evolves, an unchanging truth can only maintain itself by virtue of a simultaneous and correlative evolution of all ideas, each proportionate to the other. A theology which is not current, a theology which does not keep up with the times, will be a false theology. Close quote. Okay, so let's walk back through that one sentence at a time. First sentence. Since spirit evolves, an unchanging truth can only maintain itself by virtue of a simultaneous and co-relative evolution of all ideas, each proportionate to the other. So here we have the typical Tehardian evolutionary gibberish. Unfortunately, we don't, I'm not going to take the time to really rip it apart, which would be fun. There's some real dishonesty in the use of language here. Let's just note one screaming contradiction in terms. If ideas could and do evolve, as Father Bayard claims, then what on earth could he possibly mean when he speaks of an unchanging truth? If it's evolving, it's changing, period, full stop. So this phrase could be more accurately worded, an unchanging truth can only maintain itself by changing. In these word games, in this deliberate perversion of language, we see one of the specific errors of Russia, just as we saw with Tayar. They play with the language. When really intelligent men like this play word games like this, be careful. They're trying to sell you something the price will be your faith. Don't trust these people. Second sense, the theology which is not current, a theology which does not keep up with the times, will be a false theology. By this he means in order to be true, a theology must change with the times. And that's the key concept. This is the key principle of the whole Novel Theology, the whole new theology, the whole resourcement. The title tells you the new theology. Okay? A theology which is not current will be a false theology. To be true, theology must change with the times. So according to, to the new theology, in order to be true, theology must change with the times. In December 1946, Pope Pius XII posed a very pointed question in that very regard. I quote, There's a good deal of talk about a new theology, which must be in constant transformation, following the example of all other things in the world, which are in a constant state of flux and movement, 
without ever reaching their turn. If we were to accept such an opinion, what will become of the unchangeable dogmas of the Catholic faith? And what will become of the unity and stability of that faith? Close quote, Pope Pius XII. There's a good deal of talk about a new theology which must be in constant transformation. If we were to accept such an opinion, what will become of the unchangeable dogmas of the Catholic faith? What will become of the unity and the stability of that faith? We've already discussed this problem when we talked about the modernists. Remember that the modernists maintain that truth is, is uh, not unchangeable, but rather subjective, relative, historically conditioning and involving that everything changes over time, including dogmas and truths. That so as human consciousness progresses, the simpler, cruder understandings of reality of dogma truth that satisfied it in bygone days can no longer be accepted. The new theologians, in other words, are the new modernists. Or to use the more, more academic description of one author who highly favors them, the new theology is the inheritor of modernism. We'll take a brief look at their principal characteristics but as we do, keep in mind that their actual goal is to actually establish a new theology. In other words, by adopting this T. Hardian evolutionary framework, it instantly implies that everything is changing in advance, including theology, which means the old has to go, so it can be replaced by their vision. Their vision, not Christ's vision, their vision. And keep in mind that if everything could change, then everything can change. Everything. Okay, we'll start with comments from an academic from the Louvain who highly favors him, Jürgen Mettenpengingen. Quote, the first essential characteristic of the Nobel theology is the French language. This should not come as much of a surprise, since the modernist crisis likewise had, it root, had its roots in the French language. French also implies reaction to Latin, the church's universal language. Future priests were formed in seminaries where the professors still used Latin handbooks, close quote. Well, if you want to uproot somebody, want to take away his culture and his heritage, take away his language. And getting rid of Latin also had the added benefit of being anti-Roman, a very Gallican position. Latin had to go. We continue. Quote, in addition to the original embeddedness of the Nouvelle Theologie in the French language, there are three additional characteristic features of the movement. First, accepted Catholic theology required theologians to take dogmas, and other Roman texts as their point of departure. The representatives of the Nobel Theologie decided to abandon and to resist this approach. Close quote. Abandon and resist using dogmas as a part of departure for your theology. Dogmas are the truths of the faith. In other Roman texts, they don't want to use them for a basis of theology. We got an agenda, and we don't want things like dogmas getting in the way or cutting things up. We continue. Quote. Second, they claimed that theology had lost contact with the reality of faith to such a degree that a corrective maneuver had become necessary, and the only solution was what they called the resourcement, a return to the sources of the faith, namely the Bible, liturgy, and patristics, close quote. Now here's a perfect demonstration of why you shouldn't trust these people, because this line of argument is actually blasphemous. Are we supposed to actually believe that since the time of the fathers, roughly a thousand years ago, Catholic theology had somehow lost touch with the faith? And if that were true, how would these people know? And why should we believe them? 
Are we actually supposed to believe that their claims are significantly different than Luther's? The difference being, of course, that Luther had the intellectual honesty and integrity to leave the Catholic Church when he quit believing. As that great American theologian, Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton, pointed out, quote, there is never going to be, and there never could be, any return, any resourcement to more authentic Catholic doctrinal tradition through the abandonment of the common teaching of all the 20th century manuals of fundamental dogmatic theology. The living and infallible magisterium of the Catholic Church never abandons the most authentic Catholic tradition. The abandonment of the dogmas attacked or called into question by the original modernists or by their successors, the new theologians, would be an abandonment of the divine teaching within the Catholic Church. Close quote. There never is going to be and there never could be any return resource meant to more authentic Catholic doctrinal tradition through the abandonment of the common teaching of all the 20th century manuals of fundamental dogmatic theology. The abandonment of the dogmas attacked or called into question by the new theologians would be an abandonment of the divine teaching within the Catholic Church. We continue. Third, the new theologians had a critical attitude towards neo-scholasticism the specific and preferred form of theology supported by the magisterium. The new theologians did not want to hem themselves in with neo-scholastic boundaries. Well, of course they had a, a bad attitude about actual Catholic theology. Who needs a magisterium? Who needs St. Thomas? Truth is what we say it is. We've got an agenda. Contrast their critical approach to the actual Catholic attitude as explained by Monsignor Fenton. Quote, a practical commentary on the authority of the scholastic theologians is to be found in the severe attitude which the church has taken with regard to those who attempt to undermine their teachings. Furthermore, the enemies of the Catholic faith have habitually been strenuous opponents both of the conclusions and of the methods of these scholastic doctors. The unanimity of the scholastics must be reckoned in the same way as that of the church fathers. Close quote. One Catholic theologian made another important observation in a 1950 article noting that the new theologians make, quote, statements which seem at first sight to reflect the pure traditional theology, but which in fact do nothing of the kind, close quote. And they are, quote, very careful to repeat all the fundamental propositions of traditional theology, almost as if there was no intention of making any attack against it, close quote. And he notes these slippery tactics are especially true of Fathers de Lubac, Daniel, and Rahner, all of whom are at the very center of this. So the leaders of the new theology were the Jesuits, Father Henry de Lubac, he wrote at least two books defending Teilhard, Father Jean Danielou, Father Henry Goyard, Father Hans Urs von Balthasar, Father Karl Rahner, those are the Jesuits, and the Dominican fathers, Louis Charlier, Dominique Chenu, Yves Congar, Edward Skilovix. In 2008, in one of his last public appearances before his death, Father Skilovix echoed Teilhard when he stated, quote, there is no salvation outside the world, close quote. Teilhard was an important example in another way for the new theologians, as the infamous heretic Hans Kung explained. Quote, we have to do what the theologians did in the 50s under the authoritarian regime of Pius XII. He deposed a lot of professors, Rahner, Conger, Teilhard de Chardin, were all suppressed, but they continued quietly working to prepare the future. The best thing is to stay, to fight, and to work, and to prepare for the future. It is the wrong method to get out. Close quote. We don't need a new theology. We need a true theology. We don't need a new theology. We need a true theology. After considering 
only a few of these errors. It doesn't take much reflection to see why during the reign of Pius XII, so many of these new theologians were forbidden to teach. Why during the reign of Pius XII, so many other books and articles were ordered to be removed from circulation, and some were even placed on the index of forbidden books. Why in some cases during the reign of Pius XII, they were forbidden to publish. Why in some cases, including Father de Lubac, during the reign of Pius XII, virtually everything they wrote was subject to censorship in Rome. Why in 1950, during the reign of Pius XII, their theories were condemned in the encyclical Humanae Generis, without, without naming the particular individuals. What we see in the Novel Theology, in the New Theology then, is a whole school of false prophets arising in the heart of the church. False prophets who preach the errors of Russia, all gussied up in pretty Catholic language. And we see those errors begin to flow into the church herself, into her theologians, into her religious houses, especially those great religious orders, the Jesuits, the Dominicans, into her academic institutions, into her seminaries, and into her press and publishing houses, like some sort of horrific theological acid bath seeping into everything, dissolving the unchangeable dogmas, dissolving the unity and stability of the faith, wiping away the distinction between nature and grace, importing erroneous and even insane modern philosophical approaches into Catholic education, relentlessly attacking the Latin language and their hatred of Rome, relentlessly attacking Thomism, relentlessly attacking the theological manuals, claiming that the manuals are an obstacle to the renewal in the life of the church, when in fact the truth of that matter was they hated those very manuals because they were chock full of refutations of the very modernist lies and errors that they were advancing. Because those most responsible, the bishops and religious spheres, because they didn't sufficiently keep vigil, the lies and falsehoods permeating the preaching of these false prophets weren't resisted or seriously addressed. And so these lies and errors began to enter the hearts of men and take root there, especially the hearts of priests and academics. Their hearts began to harden. And because that, it diminished their ability to see clearly. A blindness began to settle over the church. And I beheld and heard the voice of one eagle flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the voice, the rest of the voices of the three angels, who are yet to sound the trumpet. From the commentaries. In this passage, quote, the messengers and eagle, a herald of destruction in Old Testament prophecies of judgment. The appearance of an eagle flying in mid heaven forebodes climactic trials since flying in mid-heaven elsewhere in the apocalypse always refers to creatures whose appearance anticipates the judgment at Christ's second coming. The eagle is calling aloud with a loud voice to the earth as it flies. Woe is a term used in the Old New Testaments to designate the direst punishments of God. Our Lord spoke it both as a threat to hardened sinners and a warning to all who might be prone to grievous sin. The threefold repetition provides the greatest possible emphasis on God's holiness as well as his judgment. Indeed, his holiness demands his judgment. The eagle announces a series of three disasters which are to fall on the world's inhabitants because it is hovering in midair and crying aloud with a loud voice so everyone can see and hear the warnings of judgmental woe to come. Heaven symbolizes the church. The eagle flying through the midst of heaven is obviously some great saint with a direct commission from God to preach to the world the impenitent judgments. The eagle flies to the midst of heaven where it can be seen and heard by all who dwell on earth. Those dwelling on earth is a technical term throughout the apocalypse unbelieving idolaters, close quotes. Thus, the commentaries. So one eagle, which in itself is a scriptural symbol of imminent destruction, is flying through the midst of heaven, which is symbolic for the church. 
That action is also a very foreboding action, since in the apocalypse, the phrase flying through the midst of heaven always refers to creatures whose appearance anticipates the judgment at Christ's second coming. It's saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Woe is a term used in scripture to designate the most dreadful punishments of God, both as a threat to hardened sinners and a warning to all who might be prone to grievous sin. And it's repeated three times in order to give the greatest possible emphasis on God's holiness, as well as the judgment, which has been forgotten by those dwelling on the earth, the unbelieving idolaters. The eagle announces the next three trumpet plagues which are about to fall on the world's inhabitants. Because it's flying through the midst of heaven and crying aloud with a loud voice, everyone can see and hear the warnings of these three coming woes. So the eagle is a great saint with a direct commission from God to preach to the world the impending judgments of woe. In other words, as regards the second coming, this eagle has a role very much like that which was played by St. John the Baptist in regards to the first coming. Just as St. John the Baptist was the voice of one crying out in the desert, so also the eagle is the voice of one crying out in the midst of heaven. Just as St. John Baptist told the people, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so the eagle tells the people, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Given all that, the interpretation will follow in this conference is that this eagle, this great saint, with a direct commission from God to preach to the world the trumpet plagues culminating in the last judgment, who regards the second coming has a role very much like that which was played by St. John the Baptist regards the first coming. Well, just as St. John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the desert, so also is the voice of one crying out in the midst of heaven. Who just as St. John the Baptist told the people do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so also tells the people, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, whose voice was heard throughout the church, preparing the man, mankind for the Lord to come again. This great saint is Sister Lucia. And yet, in spite of the fact that the Blessed Virgin Mary herself had clearly entrusted Sister Lucia with a message of literally apocalyptic proportions, from 1960 up until her death in 2005, she was forbidden to speak about Fatima without the explicit permission of the Holy See. With the exception of her family, the same was true for her visits. Even a priest who had served as a confessor and spiritual director from 1926 to 1938 and had been living in Brazil for over 20 years was not allowed to speak with her during a visit to Portugal in 1960. He explained that, quote, I have not been able to speak with Sister Lucia because the archbishop could not give the permission to meet her. The conditions of isolation on which she finds herself have been imposed by the Holy See. Consequently, no one may speak to her without a license from Rome. Close quote. It gets better. Until 1966, Catholics were forbidden from publishing any material concerning apparitions without first having received a bishop's imprimatur. That year, Pope Paul VI revoked that prohibition, and as one author has noted, from that point forward, any Catholic was permitted to publish freely on Marian apparitions, including those at Fatima. From that time, in fact, all the hundreds of millions of Catholics in the whole world had complete liberty to comment on Fatima, except one. There was only one Catholic in the whole world who was not allowed to speak openly. That was Sister Lucia. Given all that, it's very enlightening to carefully consider the contents of what was to be her last public interview given on December 26, 1957, to Father Fuentes, the vice postulator at that time of the cases of now Saints Francisco and Jacinta. Sister Lucia, and we quote, Father, the Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God actually falling upon them, continue their life of sin without even caring about the message. 
But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. The punishment from heaven is imminent. Father, how much time is there before 1960 arrives? It will be very sad for everyone. Not one person will rejoice at all. Beforehand, the world does not pray and do penance. I'm not able to give any other details because it is still a secret. According to the will of the Most Holy Virgin, only the Holy Father and the Bishop of Fatima are permitted to know the secret. But they have chosen not to know so that they would not be influenced. This is the third part of the message of Our Lady, which will remain secret until 1960. Tell them, Father, that many times the Most Holy Virgin told my cousins Francisco and Jacinta, as well as myself, that many nations will disappear from the face of the earth. She said that Russia will be the instrument of chastisement chosen by heaven to punish the whole world if we do not beforehand obtain the conversion of that poor nation. Sister Lucia also told me, Father, the devil is in the mood for engaging in a decisive battle against the Blessed Virgin. And the devil knows what it is that offends God the most, and which in a short space of time will gain for him the greatest number of souls. Thus the devil does everything to overcome souls consecrated to God, because in this way, the devil will succeed in leaving the souls of the faithful abandoned by the leaders, thereby the more easily will he seize them. That which afflicts the immaculate heart of Mary and the heart of Jesus is the fall of religious and priestly souls. The devil knows that religious and priests who fall away from the beautiful vocation drag numerous souls to hell. The devil wishes to take possession of consecrated souls. He tries to corrupt them in order to lull to sleep the souls of lay people and thereby lead them to final impenitence. He employs all tricks, even goes so far as to suggest delay of entrance into religious life. Resulting from this is the sterility of the interior life, and among the lay people, lack of enthusiasm in renouncing pleasures and dedicating themselves totally to God. Tell them also, Father, that my cousins Francisco and Jacinta sacrificed themselves because in all the apparitions of the Most Holy Virgin, they always saw her very sad. She never smiled at us. This sadness, this anguish which we noted in her, penetrated our souls. The sadness is caused by the offenses against God and the punishments which menace sinners. And so we children did not know what to think except to invent various means of praying and making sacrifices. The other things which sacrificed these children was to see the vision of hell. Father, that is why my mission is not just to indicate to the world the material punishments which are certain to come if the world does not pray and do penance beforehand. No, my mission is to indicate to everyone the imminent danger we are in of losing our souls for all eternity if we remain obstinate in sin. Sister Lucia also said to me, Father, we should not wait for an appeal to the world to come from Rome on the part of the Holy Father to do penance. Nor should we wait for the call to penance to come from our bishops and our dioceses, nor from religious congregations. No. Our Lord has already very often used these means, and the world has not paid attention. That is why now it is necessary for each one of us to begin to reform himself spiritually. Each person must not only save his own soul, but also help to save all the souls that God has placed on our path. The devil does all in his part to distract us and to take away from us the love for prayer. We shall all be saved together or we shall be damned together. Father, the Most Holy Virgin did not tell me that we are in the last times of the world, but she made me understand this for three reasons. The first reason is because she told me that the devil is in the mood for engaging in a decisive battle against the Virgin. And a decisive battle is the final battle, where one side will be victorious and the other side will suffer defeat. Also from now on we must choose sides. Either we are for God or we are for the devil. There is no other possibility. 
The second reason is because she said to my cousins as well as to myself that God is giving two last remedies to the world. These are the Holy Rosary and devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. These are the two last remedies which signify that there will be no others. The third reason is because in the plans of divine providence, God always, before he's about to chastise the world, exhausts all other remedies. Now when he sees that the world pays no attention whatsoever, then as we say in our imperfect manner of speaking, he offers us with certain fear the last means of salvation, his most holy mother. It is with certain fear, because if you despise and repulse this ultimate means, we will not have any more forgiveness from heaven, because we will have committed a sin, which the gospel calls the sin against the Holy Ghost. This sin consists of openly rejecting, with full knowledge and consent, the salvation which he offers. Let us remember that Jesus Christ is a very good son, and that he does not permit that we offend and despise his most holy mother. We have recorded through many centuries of church history the obvious testimony which demonstrates by the terrible chastisements which have befallen those who have attacked the honor of his most holy mother, how our Lord Jesus Christ has always defended the honor of his mother. Close quotes. The fifth trumpet. And the fifth angel sounded the trumpet. And I saw a star fall from heaven upon the earth, and it was given to him the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and the smoke of the pit arose as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the pit. From the commentaries, quote, The best interpretation is that this fallen star who opened the bottomless pit symbolizes the Jewish high priest. A key was given the fallen star. There is but one key to the shaft of the abyss indicated by the definite article, and therefore this star alone is able to open it. The priest has his key from God. The fallen star opened the shaft leading down into the abyss and turns loose the forces of evil onto the earth. These evil spirits had probably been bound by the church during the preceding ages. Legions of evil spirits have been driven out of possessed persons and out of the world. Oracles and divining spirits have been silenced, and the superstition and stupidity of idolatry have been cleared out of Christendom. These, those spirits may have been relegated to the bottomless abyss by the church through the powers of the priesthood, the spread of truth, and the administration of sacraments. They are now released, permitted to work towards the reestablishment of paganism. The obscuration of the sun and sky betokens the darkening of the authority of the church, lowering man's respect for and showing her less divine or no longer divine at all. It signifies the success of the errors or heresies to such a degree as to bring darkness to men's minds. The infection of the air is moral and spiritual and denotes the errors and immorality which the angel turns loose. The two definite articles in the phrase, the shaft of the abyss, indicates that the notion of a shaft to the abyss, as well as the abyss itself, was well known to the readers. The shaft of the underworld is blocked by a door to which God alone holds the key. The star has the divine authority to unlock the entrance to the bottomless pit. As long as the shaft is sealed, earth dwellers are protected from the demonic powers below. For the abyss is a place of chaos and destruction, harboring forces of darkness and death. When it is open, therefore, clouds of smoke pour out, and agents of terror release through the shaft to wreak their havoc on the earth. As the smoke ascends from the shaft, it obscures the sun and darkens the atmosphere. This scene of revelation harkens back to the description of locust judgment in the prophecy of Joel. The plague of locusts, according to Joel 2.10, causes the sun, moon, and stars to be darkened. And these heavenly portents, together with blood and fire and smoke, are signs of judgment and heralds the coming day of the Lord. Darkening of the sun in other parts of the cosmos has already been seen to connote judgment. The precise form of judgment partly involves deception, which is symbolized by the darkness caused by the smoke. 
Throughout the New Testament, darkness symbolizes spiritual blindness. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was described as dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. The dense smoke rising from the pit obscures the heavens. This signifies that the heresy shall succeed for a time. True Catholic doctrine is obscured and even lost to many peoples. Close quotes, thus the commentaries. Okay, so the first commentator we cited seems to think all these things came to pass in the destruction of the temple, which is why he thought the fallen star who opened the boss pit symbolized the Jewish high priest. Now, although that's certainly one, uh, one possible prophetic fulfillment of the apocalypse, remember the Matryoshka dolls, obviously it's not the particular fulfillment we're considering. But since the events associated with the destruction of the temple actually foreshadow the events of the end of the world, that insight sheds some real light on this verse because the Jewish high priest prefigures the Pope. And that insight brings the rest of the commentaries into much clearer focus. On that basis, let us go back through them now, and then we'll give our interpretation. The shaft of the abyss, as well as the abyss itself, was well known to the readers, and blocked by a door to which God alone holds the key. That key was given to the Pope. There's but one key to the shaft of the abyss, indicated by the definite article, and therefore the Pope alone is able to open it. The Pope opened the shaft leading down into the abyss, and turns loose the force of evil onto the earth. These evil spirits have probably been bound by the church during the preceding ages. Legions of evil spirits have been driven out of possessed persons and out of the world. These spirits may have been relegated to the bottomless abyss by the church throughout the powers of the priesthood, the spread of truth, and administration of sacraments. They are now released and permitted to work towards the reestablishment of paganism. The obscuration of the sun and sky betokens the darkening of the authority of the church, lowering man's respect for and showing less divine, no longer divine at all. It signifies the success of the errors or heresies to such a degree as to bring darkness to men's minds. Infection of the errors, moral and spiritual, denotes errors and morality which the angel turns loose. The Pope has the divine authority to unlock the entrance to the bottomless pit. As long as the shaft is sealed, earth dwells are protected from the demonic powers below, for the abyss is a place of chaos and destruction, harboring forces of darkness and death. When it's open, therefore, clouds of smoke pour out, and angels of terror are released to the shaft to wreak their havoc on earth. As the smoke ascends from the shaft, it obscures the sun and darkens the atmosphere. The scene of Revelation harkens back to the description of the locust judgment in the prophecy of Joel. The plague of locusts, according to Joel 2.10, causes sun when its stars to be darkened. And these heavenly portents, together with blood and fire and smoke, are signs of judgment and heralds the coming day of the Lord. The darkening of the sun in other parts of the cosmos has already been seen to connote judgment. The precise form of judgment partly involves deception, which is symbolized by the darkness caused by the smoke. Throughout the New Testament, darkness symbolizes spiritual blindness. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was described as dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Dense smoke rising from the pit obscures the heavens. This signifies that the heresy shall succeed for a time. True Catholic doctrine is obscured and even lost to many people. Okay, so in this vision we have a star falling from heaven, we have a key, we have a bottomless pit, we have the smoke like a great furnace coming up out of the pit. Given all that, the interpretation will follow in this conference is that this star which is given to the, the key of the abyss was a pope. So I have absolutely no idea what he did to unlock the entrance. I'm not going to even venture an opinion. The smoke pouring out as the smoke of a great furnace symbolizes the smoke of Satan, which flowed into the church during the council. It's the spirit of Vatican II. And the resulting darkening of the sun and the air signifies the airs of Russia pouring into the church herself, the intensification of the great apostasy and the operation of air. This spiritual famine has been growing trumpet after trumpet. Okay, so in this vision, we have a star falling from heaven. We have a key of a bottomless pit. Let's take a closer look, starting with the pit. 
In the apocalypse, the word used here, the abyss, is used to describe the domain of the dragon and the prison of the devils. Now, there's an interesting Jewish legend about the abyss having to do with a rock. Since ancient times, the Jews have called this particular rock the foundation stone. And among other things, they thought of it as a capstone, which basically plugged the opening of the shaft, which led to the abyss. And it holds back the disorder and chaos in the underworld and prevents it from erupting and flooding the world. And that's why the commentary noted the shaft of the abyss as well as the abyss itself was well known to the readers and blocked by a door to which God alone holds the key. When Solomon built the temple, this rock was actually part of the floor of the Holy of Holies. In fact, it was the very surface on which the Ark of the Covenant was placed. Nowadays, there's a huge mosque built over that rock, and that's why it's called the Dome of the Rock. Our Lord had stated that the wise man builds his house upon a rock. We all know who's the wisest man in the Old Testament. That's King Solomon. And just as King Solomon built a temple on the rock, on a foundation stone, so also our Lord, who said of himself that he was greater than Solomon, so also our Lord built his church on a rock, a living rock, a new foundation stone, St. Peter the Apostle. That's why our Lord changed Simon's name to Peter, which means rock. You know, when we say something's becoming petrified, we mean it's turning into rock. In other words, our Lord said, Thou art rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. So what the foundation stone was the temple, St. Peter is to our Lord's church. In other words, the foundation stone is a type, a prefigurement of St. Peter. St. Peter is the foundation stone for the church of Jesus Christ. When our Lord said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, meaning his church, he's pointing out that his new foundation stone, the foundation stone of his church, St. Peter, is a new capstone, responsible for suppressing the disorder and chaos of the underworld and preventing it from erupting out and flooding the world. The point is that St. Peter, the new foundation stone, has a crucial role in plugging the abyss and preventing all hell from breaking loose. Okay, when our Lord changed Simon's name to Peter, made him the new foundation stone, he also gave him keys. Why? That great doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom, teaches that when Christ gave these keys to Peter, the care and government of the whole world was committed to him. And the image here is easy to understand since back in the olden days, cities had walls with gates. So being given the keys to a city meant receiving a position of very great trust and honor in terms of safeguarding the populace. The man with the keys can open and shut to whom he wills. He can lock the gates to keep enemies out, or he can betray the people and unlock the gate and let the enemy in. That's the power of the keys. All that by way of background. Pope Pius XII was buried on October 13, 1958. Some three months later, on January 25, 1959, St. John XXIII announced the convocation of the Second Vatican Council. At some time before the council, which opened on October 11, 1962, it seems that the Pope, who's the only one that could possibly do this, did something which unlocked the entrance to bottomless pit. What that might be, I have no idea. But I do suspect that the action might be contained in the third secret, which would be one reason it hasn't been revealed. That's pure speculation on my part. Second Vatican Council. While we talk about the Council, let's keep a few things in mind. First, it's easy for God to make sure the Church has shepherds according to His will. As St. Gregory the Great said, quote, Divine justice provides shepherds according to the just deserts of the faithful. So that's sobering enough. Second, God has not abandoned us in any way whatsoever. When Christ our Lord said, I'll be with you always, he meant it. He didn't mean, I'll be with you only until the Second Vatican Council. So that's even more sobering. And third, there's been a lot of useless wailing about all this, but very little penance. 
very little penance, virtually no penance. And we're talking about a scourging, and everybody knows that. We're talking about God visiting his most dreadful anger upon us. We're talking about the first dwell of the apocalypse. Let's consider the council itself, starting with these lines from Pope St. John 23rd's speech, opening the council. Quote, the greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. To transmit that doctrine pure and integral without any attenuation or distortion, which throughout 20 centuries, notwithstanding difficulties and contrasts, has become the common patrimony of men. Close quote. The greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, the sacred deposit of Christian faith should be guarded and taught more efficaciously to transmit that doctrine pure and integral without any attenuation or distortion. What's well, not being a bit disrespectful or a bit sarcastic to note, abstracting from everything else, if it were judged on that basis alone, Vatican II has been one of the greatest failures in history. Absolutely colossal. And that's not just my opinion. We'll turn to papal analyses later, not in this conference. I'll read what the popes have said. Amazingly, St. John Twenty-Third actually allowed suspect theologians, followers of the new theology, the very theology that had spread the errors of Russia through Catholic religious houses, seminaries, and academia that had been condemned by Pius XII, men who had been banned from teaching, whose written works were suspect and in some cases had been placed on the index of forbidden books, men who were followers of Teilhard. These suspect theologians were actually allowed to work as theological experts at the council. Take the case for just one example of Father de Lubac. He's a French Jesuit who had written articles in at least two books in defense of Teilhard, who in his own written works had wiped away the distinction between nature and grace, and had been prohibited from teaching from 1950 to 1958. In 1960, the Pope himself appointed Father de Lubac to serve on the preparatory commission for the upcoming council. He was then made a theological expert for the council itself. Later, Pope Paul VI appointed him as a member of the council's theological commission of two secretariats. That's just one example. There's many more, but we're not going to take any time to go through it. Another notable aspect of this council, as many historians have remarked, is that the most influential people of the council were not actually the council fathers themselves, but the theological experts. In fact, some called it the Council of the Theological Experts. And as we've seen, many of these experts were representatives of the School of New Theology, a whole school of false prophets which had arisen in the heart of the Church, preaching the errors of Russia, gussied up in pretty Catholic language. And now they've been turned loose in the Council. And these men were not only invited to the Council, in many respects they orchestrated the results. His Father Chenu, another one of the, the New Theologians who had had books on index, had a book on the index. He served as a theological expert of the council, and as he admitted, quote, the gospel is that the theological experts directed the council. Indeed, this is not so wrong. Suddenly, the errors of Russia are about to spread into the mainstream of the church. Another absolutely astonishing fact is that in spite of the exile, imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom of so many bishops, priests, and faithful, in spite of the millions and millions murdered by these bloodthirsty regimes, the council said absolutely nothing about communism, even though there were two specific appeals to do so. The first by 213 of the Council Fathers, and the second by 435 of the Council Fathers. Why this silence? The Italian historian Roberto de Matti explains, quote, 
The gravest evil of the 20th century was certainly communism. Nonetheless, paradoxically, communism was precisely the evil that Avadictu avoided condemning. What was the reason for this failure? In August 1962, in the fall of the small French town of Metz, a secret accord was made between Colonel Tisserand, the Vatican representative, and the Orthodox Archbishop Yaroslav, Monsignor Nicodemus, who was an agent for the KGB, as was documented after the openings of the archives in Moscow. The Vatican agreed not to discuss communism at the Council as a condition to permit the participation of observers from the Russian Orthodox Church at the Council. In the secret Vatican archives, there's a note in Paul VI's own handwriting that confirms the existence of this agreement. Other documents from the KGB archives of Polish secret police, SB, and the German, East German Stasi have been published, which confirm the communist governments and the secret services of Eastern countries penetrated the Vatican to favor their interests and infiltrate the highest ranks of the Catholic hierarchy." Close quote. So the Vatican agreed not only not to condemn, but not even discuss the satanic blight of communism. And why? So that three Russian Orthodox observers might attend the council. Another one of the errors of Russia that we saw at Teilhard, and more fully with the new theologians, was their cunning use of words. In the conciliar documents, we see the text suffering from ambiguities. Father Brian Harrison explains, quote, it seems to me essential for the leaders of the church to honestly recognize the ambiguities we have inherited from the council. It frequently happened at the council that a traditional orthodox proposal would be approved with modified language or placed in the footnotes because of strong opposition from the liberals. Roberto de Mate notes that, quote, the lack of precision in the texts was justified by the pastoral non-dogmatic orientation of the council. There was no definition authorized. Everything was discussed, but nothing was defined since it was a pastoral council. The pastoral dimension in itself, secondary with respect to the doctrinal dimension, in reality turned out to be the priority, producing revolution in style, language, and mentality. Close quote. So the text had lack of precision, nothing was defined, there was a revolution in style, language, and mentality, it frequently happened that a traditional orthodox proposal would be approved with modified language. Now that's actually very sinister. If people don't speak the same language and understand their terms in the same way, it separates them. We're seeing the punishment from the Tower of Babel being introduced into the holy things. Words matter. Unchangeable dogmas require unchangeable language. Unchangeable dogmas require unchangeable language. If someone wanted to attack the dogmas, the first step would be modify their expression in Latin in terms of style, language, and mentality, and push for the vernacular. Remember the claim of the new theologians that in order to be true, theology must change with the times. This sort of divide-conquer tactic with words makes it far easier to push another agenda. During the council, Paul VI actually had to write an encyclical defending the church's teaching on the real presence and condemning the heretical positions of two of the new theologians who were working as theologians at that time at the council, Father Karl Rahner and Father Edward Skillebex. Although there were slight differences in their claims, the upshot was that although they would use words real presence, they didn't mean what the church meant by that. There's those word games again. In fact, they denied transubstantiation. They claimed that after the consecration, the bread and wine are made bread and wine. The only thing that happened was that the meaning or the purpose of the bread changed. 
They claim that the substance of the bread and wine remained. There's no change in them being bread and wine. They just merely take on a new meaning, which they call trans-signification. If they get a new meaning, you call it trans-signification, or if it makes it new purpose, that's trans-finalization. In response to this, the Pope wrote, quote, For we can see that some of those who are dealing with this most holy history in speech and writing are disseminating opinions on the dogma of transubstantiation that are disturbing the minds of the faithful and causing them no small measure of confusion about matters of faith. Just as if it were all right for someone to take doctrine that has already been defined by the church and then interpret it in such a way as to weaken the genuine meaning of the words. It is not permissible to discuss the mystery of transubstantiation without mentioning what the Council of Trent had to say about the marvelous conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole substance of the wine into the blood of Christ as if they involved nothing more than transignification or transfinalization, as they call it. Everyone can see that the spread of these and similar opinions does great harm to belief in and devotion to the Eucharist. Close quote, Pope Paul VI. Uh, they both kept working as theologians, by the way. In this deliberate manipulation of language and using Catholic terms, but emptying them of their content, we see one of the specific errors of Russia just as we saw with Teilhard. Precision in words really matters. What would happen if at the consecration, instead of saying, this is my body, the priest said, that is my body. Nothing would happen. What if, what would happen if during a baptism, instead of saying, I baptize you, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the priest said, the community baptizes you name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Nothing would happen. Words matter. Paul VI also addressed the proper use of language in this encyclical. Under the heading, proper wording of great importance, the Pope states that, quote, careless use of words can give rise to false opinions regarding faith. The rule of language which the church has established through the long labor of centuries with the help of the Holy Spirit is to be religiously preserved, and no one may presume to change it at his own pleasure under the pretext of new knowledge, close quote. But that's the whole point of the new theology. The new theologians explicitly reject using dogmas and other Roman texts as a basis for theology. This is what their, their fundamental operating principles. We continue. Paul VI, who would ever tolerate that the dogmatic form is used by the ecumenical councils for the mysteries of our faith be judged as no longer appropriate for men of our times, and let others be rashly substituted for it. Well, as we've seen, the key concept, the key principle is the, of the whole new theology is that in order to be true, it has to change with the times. We continue. Paul VI, the dogmas of faith express concepts that are not tied to a certain specific form of human culture, to a certain level of scientific progress, or to one another theological stool. Instead, they set forth what the human mind grasps of reality through necessary and universal experience, and what it expresses in apt and exact words, whether it be in ordinary or more refined language. These formulas are adapted to all men of all times and in all places. The meaning that Holy Mother Church has once declared is to be retained forever, and no pretext of deeper understanding ever justifies any deviation from that meaning. Close quotes, Pope Paul VI. And in all these word games, in the fact that the Council 
text had lacks of precision, that nothing was defined, there was a revolution in style, language, and mentality, that a traditional orthodox proposal would be expressed in modified language, that the Pope actually had to point out that the dogmas of faith are adapted to all men of all times and all places. That in regards to dogmas, the Pope has to remind everybody that the meaning of the Holy Mother Church has once declared is to be retained forever. No pretext of deeper understanding ever justifies any deviation from that meaning. That the Pope actually had to write an encyclical correcting heretical claims about the real presence made by theologians who are currently working in Rome at the Council. In all these word games and the Pope's responses, we see a very clear indication of some of the contents of the third secret. In her fourth memoir, Sister Lucia inserted the introduction of the third secret, quote, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, close quote. And what we're seeing here, symbolically speaking, that in regards even to the most blessed sacrament of the altar, Dogma is not being preserved in Rome. In the next conference, we'll start by considering the wake of the Council, Spirit of Vatican II, the intensification of the spiritual family that we've been seeing growing trumpet after trumpet, this great apostasy and operation of error. We started this section with an excerpt from Pope John, St. John the 23rd speech opening the council. Let's close with an excerpt from Pope Paul's speech, which closed the council. And as we read this, keep in mind that only three months previously, the Pope actually had to write an encyclical to point out, among other things, that the dogmas of the faith are adapted to all men of all times and all places. The Pope had to point out in regards to the dogmas, the meaning of the Holy Mother Church has once declared is to be retained forever. And no pretext of deeper understanding ever justifies any deviation from that meaning. The Pope had to correct heretical attacks against the dogma of the real presence made by theologians who were working at this very council. Keep all that, all those struggles in mind as we close with this excerpt from Pope Paul VI's speech on December 7, 1965, which closed the council. Quote, Still fresh in our memory are the words uttered in this basilica by our venerated predecessor, John XXIII, whom we in truth call the originator of this great synod. In his opening address to the council, he had this to say. The greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine be guarded and taught more effectively. His great purpose has now been achieved. The greatest concern of the Ecumenical Council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. His great purpose has now been achieved. Well, indeed.